0: Good evening. There, I like that. That's a little better. A couple of announcements. They'd like you to sign up this week if you want to go to the next Mexico trip to Pedregalas. It's going to be April 14th through the 16th, so those of you who are dodging the tax man, that's a good time to be away, I suppose. Uh, High school and junior high are going to go and minister to the church down there. They're going to do a three-day VBS and a soccer tournament. And so that sounds like fun. If you'd like to chip in and help out with that, they'd love for you to sign up sometime between now and next week at this time so they get an idea of how many people are going to come. And then some of the guys here came up with an idea for a that I think is a great idea for a ministry. We have contact with a lot of soldiers who are overseas right now and fighting and so they're going to put a list of some suggested items together that you could bring to the church like on Sunday with a card or a note to a soldier with your return address for correspondence and they're going to send out little care packages Um, some like baby wipes, some non-perishable snacks and things like that. And so they have these little flyers that tell about it back in the back after church. So this is a great opportunity to, um, you know, get a little box, put some stuff in it, and uh, we'll put a little Bible and a tract in it and and ship it out to some soldiers. So uh, I think that sounds like a very worthy few minutes of your time that it'll take to do that, and it's just a, it'll mean a lot to the people who get it. Let's look to the Lord in prayer now. God, we so appreciate being here with the freedom to study your word, with the opportunity to be together in a place to do it, realizing that right now there are some of our own body and many of our countrymen and our allies who are in harm's way right now, risking their lives so that the rest of us can enjoy the freedom that we have. And so that people who have been oppressed for many years can maybe experience the kind of freedom to actually hear the gospel and to respond to you. And So God, we pray for your wisdom and protection on, our, on all of our troops, the men and women who are over there serving those who are back here waiting to support, waiting to chip in where they're needed, those government officials, our president and his cabinet and others who are making life-and-death decisions on a moment-by-moment basis. God, we just pray that you would allow us to finish this thing off as soon as possible, and I pray that you would do it in such a miraculous way that There would be so many stories, testimonies of how your hand was at work and that the people of Iraq would understand that it's not just America and Britain and these other countries, but that, God, you have looked down on them and you've smiled upon them. You've heard their cries and you desire to see them delivered. So, God, please just cause this to happen quickly. We pray for your protection on all the troops we pray for your protection on the civilians who are over there, that, Lord, uh, your work would be accomplished and that it would be your work and people wouldn't compromise and being afraid to offend, but that, Lord, they would speak up about you for you, and that your gospel would spread and that people would come to know you as a result. So, God, please just be with our country tonight. Be with those who are serving overseas tonight. Lord, give them good success, and I pray that you'll help them to sense that you are with them, that as you say, they're they are your servants, that they don't bear the sword in vain, but that they would realize that this is your calling for them right now, and they would look to you, turn to you, reach out to you in every way possible, That that many, many men and women who are in the military and who are in other civil service would, would, Lord, come to know You in a more personal way as a result of being in a difficult situation surrounded by needs. We pray especially for those POWs now who are sitting. We don't know how they're being treated, but Lord, I pray that You would protect them, that You would deliver them quickly, that they would sense Your speaking to them You're surrounding them with your love. God, that you would get them out of there just as soon as possible, even as soon as impossible, because, God, you're able to just open those doors and and release them tonight. And we pray, God, that you would do that. We thank you for all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 3. Of course, we're going through the Bible, and we took a detour after Leviticus to Hebrews. Last week, we talked about, went through, studied Hebrews chapters one and two, all about Christ and who He is, His superiority. That theme continues now into the next, well, the rest of the book, really. But in, we saw the emphasis on Jesus Christ being so much greater than the angels. As we come into chapter three, we're going to see the emphasis being how he's greater than Moses. Chapter 4, how he's greater, he did is doing something that Joshua couldn't do. He's greater than Joshua. And then as we next week, when we get into chapter 5, we'll see the some of the biggest tie-ins to the book of Leviticus as talks about him as our high priest. Um, it's alluded to throughout the book, but that's really the, the meat and potatoes of the book of Hebrews. So we'll look at chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Paul, I think, or the author of Hebrews, if you feel better with me saying that. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Whenever he says, therefore, and this is one of the reasons that I didn't mention to you why I think there's a real good chance that Paul wrote Hebrews, as well as all the other things that we talked about, is the the use constantly of therefore or wherefore as at key pivotal points in the passage. That's a very Pauline uh, phraseology, and you're going to see it throughout this chapter and, and throughout the book of Hebrews also. It's a word that looks back on, okay, now I've built the argument this far. So on the basis of what we've been talking about, now let's... Shift gears a little bit and let's move further on. And so he says, therefore, holy brethren. Now he's writing, he's probably calling them brethren because they're his brethren in the flesh, the Jewish people. That's probably why he chose that term. And rather than this being a general epistle to all the church, this is a book that was addressed specifically to Jewish Christians. And that's probably what he has in mind. And holy means set apart. And certainly, and God's people, the Jewish people, were called holy and set apart and sanctified in a lot of places. His thought here is to challenge them to the fact that, look, we're a family. God has been working in our midst historically. We've seen what He has done for us. He set us apart for a purpose, and He hasn't cast us off. He hasn't rejected us yet. And so he's appealing to them as fellow people who have benefited from a great heritage, a great amount of experience with God, teachings from him, the whole Old Testament to base it on. And now Jesus coming and fulfilling it all. And he's saying, look, you guys, we have a lot going for us and we have Jesus Christ who's greater than the angels, who's, who in chapters 1 and 2 is seen very strongly as God, and he continues that through this section. But he says, look what we have, holy brethren. We're partakers of the heavenly calling. God had a purpose in our lives. God decided way back that he said in the seed of Abraham all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so there is that heritage that we have, he's saying, And think about it. Look at how far God has taken us. We're not only brothers, but we're partakers of the heavenly calling. And this is something that applies to us as well. In fact, even more so than to those people who he was probably specifically addressing here, the Jewish Christians. And we need to look. We see who Jesus is, but look who he has made us. The fact that that he can call us brothers and sisters. The fact that he gathers us together and says, you're my family and you're holy. Holy not because of what you've done. You certainly don't deserve the title holy. But the fact that what he did delivered us that he can actually declare us to be holy, justify us, declare us to be righteous. And so he says, look, here's the deal. Here's Jesus. Here's you. You're holy. You're holy because he says so. We're brothers and sisters, not only with each other. That's great. But the greatest thing is that Jesus Christ, we're co-heirs with him. He is our brother as well. And so on the basis of that and acknowledging also that we are partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, to be a partaker is something that's a little different than completely having all of what God wants to do in your life fulfilled. And so God has a calling on all of us. He he says that if He's begun a good work, He's going to complete it in us. And yet we find ourselves in a situation today where we are only partakers of His calling. Because He hasn't finished what He wants to do within us. In 1 Corinthians 13, when it talks about the, the eternality of love as opposed to gifts... And he goes, Paul says, now we know in part. But when the perfect has come, when Jesus comes back, then we'll have the full deal. And so the emphasis here is much the same. He's saying, look, you know who Jesus is. You realize that there's a calling on your life. We understand, however, that though God has declared you holy and righteous, yet we're still only partakers. We still only are in process. We're still just on the road to where God's going to take us. And so he says, in light of that, consider, that word there means to pay attention to, focus on, meditate on, consider the apostle, which just means the sent one, and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. The apostle the apostle is someone who is sent. It's, the word really means missionary to a great degree. And an apostle is someone who is sent to go to someone to declare some good news to them, to, clear, to declare the gospel to them. You can Apostle is also used biblically in a very specialized sense meaning those who were either originally with Jesus or who were personally commissioned by him and saw him. Paul called himself an apostle probably on the basis of the fact that he did see Jesus after he rose from the dead. It seems like that was a, 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 you know, a requirement to be an apostle in the most specific sense. But apostle is also used of people who wouldn't qualify for that, such as Barnabas. And apostle just means one who is sent. Now, here, apostle is used in the ultimate sense because he is the one who was sent. But the emphasis and the understanding here is look, look at who he is, look at who we are, and understand this. He was sent to you, he is our ultimate apostle. It's probably, this verse is probably the reason why Paul didn't, in the beginning of the book, start the book by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, as he typically does, because the point of this book was to present the apostle, and who has a right to say, I'm a co-apostle with Jesus or something, Paul would be more inclined to emphasize what a servant he is rather than to, to blast his credentials as an apostle. But at any rate, anyone who is sent, any missionary, anyone who has a calling on God's life, there's really nothing compared to Jesus Christ, who is the apostle, the one who is sent. But not only is he sent, it says, but he's also our high priest. And, And the Jews would know exactly what that meant. The high priest, the one who would go before God to represent the people the only one who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple behind the veil into where the the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat was, the only one who was allowed to do that was the high priest. And he, after sacrificing for himself and his family, was only allowed to go in there once a year on Yom Kippur. So you see the dual emphasis, the apostle and high priest. As our apostle, God sends him to us to minister to us. As our high priest, He goes and represents us before God and intercedes for us as we find He is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us all the time. So what what the the verse is really trying to say is, consider Him because He's got us coming and going. He is representing God to us. He is representing us to God. The whole idea of considering Jesus, honestly, if... If we wanted to stop right here, and I said, why don't you just for the next hour meditate on what does it mean to consider him, to meditate on him, to think about him? As far as that goes, that would be enough for us to focus on for the rest of the week, maybe for the rest of our lives. We could do much worse than to just say, let's just shut the church down and for the rest of our lives, let's just deal with this verse considering Jesus, because truly, if we could do that, if we, I don't think there's anything more important, and throughout the book of Hebrews, this point is emphasized, of course, looking unto Jesus later in chapter 12 that you're familiar with, but here he's saying, think about him. Look at Jesus. And it's true that as you look at Jesus, everything else falls into place. If there isn't a problem that you'll ever have or a difficulty, or a sorrow, or a, uh, you know, mess that you can get yourself into that considering Jesus won't get you out of. I had a friend of mine just the other day wanted to come over and talk, and he was going through some real struggles and making some decisions and things like that, and so we went down and walked down by the beach, and as he was sharing with me about there were some legitimate difficult things that he was suffering but the Lord just spoke to me and said, tell him to look at me. Tell him to look at me. And so, I, you know, you want to be careful when somebody's going through a tough time to not sound trite, to not be just tossing it out there. But, you know, I just, I told them, I said, you know, Jesus knows exactly how you feel because so often... Think about the ministry that he wants to do in our lives, and we don't appreciate it, just as you maybe aren't being appreciated in what you're trying to do for the Lord now. And I said, the fact is, you're hurting because life hurts. It just does. That's the way it is. But you're not worshiping a God who doesn't understand that. We saw in chapter 2, we'll see again later on in chapter 4, that Jesus is one who understands exactly what we're going through. And he gives us the privilege of suffering with him of being partakers in his suffering. And I said, is there anything that that you've got on your plate? Is there anything that's stressing you out, that's hurting you, that's paining you, that looking at Jesus won't really put it into perspective? I love the old song that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that is so true. Take a look at the, what you're facing. You may have some economic problems. You may be broke. Not know where your next meal is going to come from. Look at Jesus. He lived his life. He changed the world. He saved the world. And he didn't have a place to lay his head. So if you're homeless, he knows what's, what that's like. He was. He said, but I'm only visiting here. I have a home. It's in heaven. Jesus says, don't stress out about your home here. You've got a home in heaven. Your Father's going to take care of you. If you are struggling with particular decisions, there's a lot to be said for the old, you know, what would Jesus do thing. And it's really, there's a That's really the way we ought to be living our lives, going, okay, God, I just want to do what you do. Now, is there any instance in the Bible where I can see Jesus in a similar situation? If not, then I'm going to wait and I'm going to see what he tells me to do and I'll do it. But my focus can't be upon my problem or my decision. My focus needs to be on him. It's amazing how if you keep your eye on him, everything else comes into focus. And yet, if you look at everything else, it just becomes fuzzy and confusing. Looking at Jesus, considering him. It's one of the reasons why when we study the Old Testament, we look for signs of Jesus being there. Because he has a way of making it all clear. You know, you may be hurting tonight, and he knows it. But if you look at him, he'll show you how to go through it. He'll show you how to, what the best approach is going to be because he's gone before us. And so often when we're going through tough times, I was sharing with somebody today, and he's kind of hurting and going through things, and he just couldn't, can't quit talking about his problems. And I said, when Jesus was... You may be being attacked by everyone. Jesus showed us how to deal with that. When he was being attacked, he didn't say a word. He just shut his mouth like a sheep before her shears is dumb. Didn't open his mouth at all. Well, there's a lesson in that. But if you want to know how to go through life, consider Jesus. Look at him. He makes everything that we go through worthwhile. He makes, he gives meaning to all of it, and he sets that example as to how to deal with life. And we don't have anything to compare it to. He was for all of eternity in heaven. And then, as our great apostle was sent to us, lived in this world, as our great high priest went from here into heaven, atoned for our sins, made it possible for us to be at one with him, consider him. We're never going to get through two chapters if I do this. (laughs) If I start going on like that, just go like, come on, (laughs) And I probably won't pay any attention to you. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house? For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. For a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So now he says, this one, this servant, Jesus Christ, was faithful to him who appointed him. He was sent by God and he was faithful. And he said, Moses also was faithful in all his house. Now. Moses wasn't perfect, and that's not what he's saying here. But Moses was faithful. And one of the first clues, I mean, when you think of Moses, you realize he made some big mistakes. The biggest one of which caused him to not even go into the promised land. Until years later when he showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration. But remember when he was told to speak to the rock to bring out water and instead he struck the rock for the second time and it messed up the picture that God wanted to give of Jesus being the rock and he was only struck once and then you just have to talk to him. Because Moses goofed, goofed that up, he, it made it so that he wasn't able to go into the promised land. And ultimately he wasn't able to lead the people enough so that once they faced the promised land, We're going to read about it later, but they all ended up, except for Joshua and Caleb, they all ended up dying in the wilderness. And so Moses had some great victories, but he had some great defeats as well. He made a lot of mistakes. But you know how I know he's faithful? How do we know about Moses' mistakes? He wrote it down. He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? That someone would... If I were Moses, I'd make more of an emphasis on all the good things I did. I would kind of blame Aaron or whatever for the whole striking the rock thing. You know, I would say, yeah, I shouldn't have struck the rock, but I didn't know what God was saying, and I, you know, everybody was going, come on, strike the rock, strike the rock, and I just did it, or maybe I just wouldn't even talk about it at all, I would just go, you know, I took them as far as they needed to go, I brought them out of Egypt, I brought them to the promised land, and then it's time to move over and let a younger guy take over, and that's what I did. That's the way I'd tell the story if I was Moses, but Moses instead shares his own failure, he, he tells, how many people write a, an autobiography and say, by the way, I murdered a guy when I was young. For the first 40 years of my life, I just hung out in Pharaoh's house and didn't do much of anything. For the next 40 years of my life, I wandered around in the desert because I was afraid. Who's going to tell that kind of a story? And never mind the fact that a guy who hasn't done anything before he's 80, who's going to write a book about him anyway? But here, Moses records the whole story. Amazingly, in the end of Deuteronomy, it even says that he died, so I'm not sure how he pulled that off. I have a feeling somebody might have finished the last chapter of Deuteronomy for him, but but he was faithful. And that's what the Bible says God requires of a steward. Now, it's not easy being perfect. Believe me, I can tell you, it's really hard. I work at it. (laughs) And it still doesn't work. If I thought that what I had to do to be useful to God was to be perfect, or even to get people to believe that I was perfect, I would have quit a long time ago. But God doesn't say, I expect you to be perfect. He just says, I want you to be honest. And it's required of a steward that he be found faithful, just showing up, just hanging in there, not quitting, That's the whole thing. It's enduring. Jesus says, abide in me. The branches need to abide in the vine. And that's what we have to do. Stay, hang in there, not give up, not quit. And Moses was faithful because he never quit. He hung in there till the end. He got off to a late start. And maybe you're 80 years old and feeling like I never did anything with my life yet. That's okay. Moses was just getting going at that point. So there's still, if there's life ahead of you, there's an opportunity to serve God. But Moses was faithful, and that's all God expects of us. To show up. To just hang in there. To not quit. To not turn our backs on him. To not give up on him. He was faithful, but it says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Well, in verse 2, he was faithful to whom he was appointed, as Moses also was faithful. So it says, yeah, Jesus was faithful, Moses was faithful. But this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. So he's saying they're both faithful, but there's a difference between the two of them. And the difference is Moses worked in the house. He was a servant in the house. But Jesus built the house. And certainly, because it's his building that he put together, he was the one who was doing it. In fact, he not only created the Jewish people, he made the world, the whole universe. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying here is, look, they were both faithful in doing what they were supposed to do, but Jesus had a much bigger job to do. And the difference between Jesus and Moses is the difference between a guy who works in the house and a guy who built the house. And then he says, "'For every house is built by someone, "'but he who built all things is God.'" Now, do you catch this? He's saying, Jesus built the house, Moses served in the house. And then he goes on to say, and understand this, the guy that built the house, the guy that built everything, all houses, he's God. Well, what does that tell us about Jesus? Again, we saw it in chapter one many times. We saw it in chapter two. Here again in chapter three, Jesus is God. How can you miss this? How can someone believe that Jesus is any less than God when he says, look, Moses worked in the house, Jesus built the house, and the one who built the house was God. Do you have to have a degree in logic to make the connection? He's saying Jesus is God. He made it all. And again, not only is the difference between Moses and Jesus the difference between the guy that made the house and the guy that works in the house, but he says, Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So he's saying, Moses was a faithful servant. Jesus is a son. And the difference between the heir, he's not only the creator, he's not only the one who made the house, but he is also the one who then went and bought the house, inherited it by giving his own life. And so in every way, he not you can't compare him to Moses. Hey, Moses was great. Moses was faithful. And in fact, Moses, as it says here, as a, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, Moses spoke of Jesus Christ. Moses prophesied concerning him, but he is the one. Look over at Deuteronomy chapter 18. And here's just one example of what he's talking about in terms of being a witness. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brother, and him you shall hear. And then, and then it says, verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. And then he goes on to talk about if a prophet presumes to speak a word in my name and I haven't commanded him to speak, kill him. And if you say in verse 21, how do we know if the word is really from God? Well, if it happens, if it comes to pass, verse 22, then the Lord spoke. If the prophet says something presumptuously and it doesn't happen, don't worry about him. He's not really a prophet. But here's Moses back in Deuteronomy saying there's going to be a prophet coming and he's you can't compare him to me oh he'll be doing some of what I'm doing but in just a more incredible way and so that's kind of what he's referring to here in chapter three now what about verse six this is another one of those problem warning kind of passages that we see throughout Hebrews where he says Christ is the son of his own house whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end Now, if it says that we will be a part of his house if we hang in there, if we hold fast doesn't really refer to us hanging on. It means if we're solid, if we stay, if we remain. Does this mean that we all have to worry about losing our salvation? Does this mean that, boy, it all comes down to you? It's great. You've come to the Lord. You've become a Christian. But I have to tell you, man, hang in there. You're going to be hanging by the skin of your teeth. You're going to be gripping. Your grip's going to be slipping. You just hang on, because if you're lucky enough to make it, then you'll be a part of his house. Or can we know that we have eternal life today, as John said in 1 John? That's a, that's a difficult question. But really what he's saying here is if we hold fast, if we last then this is where we are. But the emphasis isn't on our holding fast. The emphasis is, we're going to find out at the end who's a part of the house. See, and it's kind of like 1 John chapter 2. John said, referring to people who left the body, who took off and departed, who bailed out, he says, they went out from among us because they weren't really of us. If they had been of us, they would have stayed with us, but they've gone out in order to show that they aren't really of us. And I think a lot of times, even when people just depart from the faith, when people just you know, bail on the Lord, even sometimes when people get caught up in cults and everything, sometimes that's just God's way of filtering things out. Those people separating between the sheep and the goats, separating between the people who really believe and those who are just hanging around. And so I don't think that this passage is a real strong statement, although it presents problems, and if someone's Arminian, they can have a lot of fun with this first. But I don't think that it necessarily implies that we are all in danger of falling away. I don't believe that at all. And I personally don't believe there's any way I could fall away. However, I do want to make sure that I'm for real because I've deceived myself about a lot of things in the past. And so I don't want to fool myself into thinking that what I have is eternal life when really what I have is something that's only temporary. And so the warning here is that it is possible for someone to absolutely believe that they're a part of the house and find out later they weren't a part of the house at all. We are a part of the house if we hang in there. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And so uh, it's not a question of, uh oh, could you lose your salvation? Like I've said before, you can, uh, you know, I've argued endlessly with people on this question of losing your salvation. But here's the bottom line if you lost it, if it's gone, was it eternal? No, it didn't last. So what you had, was it really salvation? Wouldn't you define salvation as eternal life? If, if that's so, if you'll grant me that, if it didn't last eternally, whoops, whatever you had was you might have had a part. And we're going to see this. We'll go into this more in Hebrews 6, so I don't want to get too bogged down in it. But my point being, holding fast is something not, that doesn't keep you as a Christian, but letting go is something that will prove that you're missing something in the first place. That's my take on it anyway. And so we need to hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and this is pretty cool because very clearly saying this is the Holy Spirit and what he's doing is quoting the Old Testament, quoting Psalms. And so he's crediting the Holy Spirit to having written this. Later we find out that it was actually David who wrote this Um, Over in chapter 4, it mentions, it quotes this passage, and it says in chapter 4, verse 7, again, he designates a certain day, saying, in David, today, after such a long time, if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So, Psalm 95, there's nothing in Psalm 95 that says it's a psalm of David. As most of David's psalms say, a psalm of David up at the top. But Psalm 95, many people in many commentaries will say it's anonymous because we don't know who wrote it. But if Hebrews is from God, then we certainly know that David wrote it. But in Psalm 95, it says, Today, if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they've not known my ways, so I swore in my, in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so he's going back to this statement in Psalm 95, where David, really God speaking through David, said, Look, you guys rebelled, the children of Israel. I ended up having to leave you out in the wilderness. And I said, No way are you going in, because you guys are rebellious. You're not following me. And we find out later, well, in the very next verse, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And this, you'll see this throughout the rest of this chapter three as well, the sin that caused the children of Israel to fail to enter into rest. You might think it would be the sin of idolatry, you might think it might be the sin of immorality. And, and when we think of falling short of what God has for us, often we think, oh, we need to not do bad sins. We need to really be good people. We need to make sure that we tithe, that we pray, that we do. But interestingly and surprisingly, I think, as he presents here, the problem wasn't any of that. For if, if salvation and rest was dependent upon anything that we can do, we'd all be in trouble. But what they did is something that's, well, it seems like it should be pretty easy to avoid. It was simply unbelief. And God said, because you didn't believe me, you didn't take me at my word. Unbelief is the reason why they weren't able to enter into the promised land. And unbelief is that same danger that we all face, according to Hebrews, that we all need to be careful about. It's so easy for us to even do the right thing and yet not really believe. To pray and not believe. To serve Him and not believe. To to just not really say, hey, I know that God's going to work this out. And the reason why unbelief is such a big deal is it leads to every other sin. If I believed God, if you believed God, really believed Him, we would never do any of the bad things we do. We would never fall into the traps that we fall into. Because they're all based on not believing him, not believing what he says is right and wrong, is beneficial and harmful, not believing that he is going to come through the way he says he will. And so, here, beware, lest there be in any of you, he didn't say in any of us, in any of you, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, same idea, Again, he says, today, if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who did not obey, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. He said, now... Since we're talking about Moses, let's look back to the children of Israel and understand God said, I wanted them to enter into my rest, and they didn't even enter into the promised land. They they died in the wilderness. And he's saying, there's a danger here. We need to be exhorting each other. We need to be reminding each other, hey, don't quit. Don't fall short. Don't stop before entering into the rest that God wants to give us. Don't allow sin to harden your heart. Boy, when, you, when we begin to excuse our sin, when we start to make excuses and, and alibi and put spins on things that we do and just begin to accept certain sins in our lives, as going, eh, you know, it's not a big deal. It hardens our heart. We need to have the same attitude towards sin that God has. And we, and, and we need to warn each other, hey, be careful. Remember to believe what he says. Remember to not allow sin to harden your heart. You can be the most wonderful Christian in the world, but if you will just decide on a particular issue, just you'll accept compromise. You'll just say, you know, I know this isn't right, but I'm just going to do it anyway. And you just continue to do that you not only fall into that sin, you not only demonstrate that what you're really doing is you don't believe that God is telling the truth, but then what happens, your heart becomes hard, and it gets easier and easier to do it. It, Your eyes become accustomed to the dark, and it becomes much easier to excuse yourself once you've gotten used to it. Have you ever, you know, when you were a new Christian, certain things that when you'd say it, it would just... Oh, it would stumble you. I shouldn't talk like that. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't think those things. Sometimes very legalistically, but naively, having such a sensitivity as a new believer. And yet after a while, something like that doesn't shock you at all, doesn't offend you at all any longer. Well, we're used to it. We're big people. We're grown up. That's no big deal. Think about some movies that you used to watch and they would be offensive, you 'd hear certain words or see certain things and and you'd go oh you 'd walk out of the theater you 'd turn the thing off you 'd get sometimes get rid of your TV because there 's so much junk on it, but if you just allow yourself to oh you know what 's the big deal it 's p g come on we 're talking p g thirteen we 're talking thirteen year olds come on I'm 70. i 'm seventy and and we begin to we begin to make excuses pretty soon you put yourself in a place where Somebody goes, some Christian says, oh, have you seen this movie? And you go, yeah, it was great. It was an awesome movie. And then they go watch it and they come back and go, it was an awesome movie. There was all those bad words and there was this bad, sin. and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. I didn't even notice. That's not a good thing to get to the point where, yeah, I don't even notice sin. It hardens our hearts. We're all susceptible to that. I am as much as you are. And so we need to work together, remind each other, keep each other honest. We need to remind each other to stay holy, to stay pure, to have high standards, to believe in what God says, to not fall because of unbelief and compromise. And so he's saying, look, this is a problem. If they fell in the wilderness because of unbelief, you might end up in the wilderness. And I think there are a lot of Christians who hear this concept, and and the word rest comes up in these next couple chapters a lot, and and we go, yeah, that's exactly what I need. Man, I need rest. I need a break. I, I need that so much. We all feel that at one time or another. We all can relate to the one that Jesus was talking to when he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we go, yeah rest that sounds good let's in fact just for the rest of the night let's just close our eyes and take a little nap it would be great and we'll you know rick could come up and play some little you know kids kind of songs and we could just oh wouldn't that feel it would be good it would would feel really good but we're not going to do it because rick hasn't practiced his little kid songs but here's the deal As Christians, we can say, oh, yes, Jesus, I need rest. Oh, I'm laboring, I'm heavy laden, and I I want your rest. And and we come to him and we proceed along a certain path with him. But we go, you know what? It's great being a Christian because I'm going to heaven. But when you talk about rest, I haven't done much of that. I haven't experienced that kind of peace. I haven't felt that work of God. And what Paul is saying here is, If that's a problem, understand that's what the children of Israel did. They heard the message, same message that we've heard, just in a different form. They came out of Egypt. They crossed the sea. They heard the voice. They saw the law, the the lightning, the thunder. They built a tabernacle. They had a high priest representing them. And they died in the wilderness because they came short of what God wanted to do in their lives. And he's saying, don't think that that can't happen to you. Don't think that you, and, and we all are testimonies to it at one time or another, of being in the wilderness going, well, you know, I love God and everything, but man, I feel so dry. I feel so thirsty. I'm so tired. I'm worn out. And he goes, wait a minute. You're in the wilderness, and I didn't want you to be there. I wanted you to go through the wilderness, but I don't want you to stop there. I don't want you to decide that it's okay to live in the wilderness. It's not. Now, oh, we all have to pass through the wilderness to get to the promised land. And even when we get to the promised land, we're going to see later, it's still a battle. But he's saying there remains a rest. There's something that God wanted you to experience that if you're in the wilderness, you haven't got it yet. And if you haven't got it yet, if you haven't had that peace, you don't, you're not experiencing that in your life, then look at the children of Israel and understand this. It happened to them because of unbelief, and unbelief will do the same thing to us. Now as we come into chapter 4, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, it's been said, Today, if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So he's saying, look, there is still a rest. And and then he says, remember the Sabbath? How it's important for you to take that day off, even as God rested after creation? Well, that was just a picture. That in itself didn't fulfill this. Even if you, as as a Jewish believer, were really good to shut down for one day, to take that day off, to experience that Sabbath rest, he said, that still wasn't what it was all about. That was only a picture that day off is only something that would cause you to feel a little bit of peace so that at least you would know what it is when you don't have it. If somebody were to say to you, have you ever taken a day off? Do you know what that feels like to just do nothing? And you go, no, I don't even know what that feels like. Then he says, then I don't even have a way to communicate with you. But he said, the Sabbath is all about getting that message across and yet it's about much more than that. It's like saying to you, Have you ever gone away on a vacation and just done nothing, had a great vacation, just a perfect vacation? Just that trip that was, oh, everything you dreamed of. And and hopefully you can all go, yeah, yeah, I know what that feels like. It's just there are some days that I've been somewhere and it was just awesome. And then he says, but that's what you're supposed to feel like all the time. You're supposed to be living in that Sabbath. It's not to be done once a week or every seventh year. It's something, there's a, a sense in which God w- wants to work in your life in such a way that that rest is an area in which you live. That whatever it is that you're doing, the presence of God is obvious. And so, he says, it still remains. And the idea is, and as he goes on here, Joshua, well, look in verse 8. If you have a King James that says Jesus, but the name Jesus and Joshua are the same, are the same uh Word and so there are some translators who put Jesus here, but it was really Joshua, Yeshua, same name. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So he's setting the stage to say, Joshua brought them into the promised land, and that was great, but they never did accomplish all that God wanted to do through Joshua so yes you can find different levels of rest they left Egypt they got out into the wilderness that was an improvement they get to Sinai the law is given tabernacles built there's atonement and hey good they're progressing Moses only took them that far Joshua came along led them into the promised land great that's awesome that feels good But he's going, but even after Joshua, let's face it, it wasn't rest. It was a battle. It was difficult. And so he's saying, still, we're not done. This thing isn't over. There still remains a rest that God was talking about. Something that the children of Israel in the Old Testament never experienced completely. Something that God wants us to experience. And so he says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So, and this is kind of funny. The, the King James says, let's labor to in, enter into that rest. This says, let's be diligent to enter into that rest in the New King James. But you think, wait a minute, it's rest. Why do you have to work? Why do you have to be diligent about it? Why is it a chore to enter into rest? Can't you just stop what you're doing? No, it, it actually is work. It actually is something that you need to progress in your knowledge of Him, and your relationship with Him. It's something we do have a job to do. It's not just to not do anything. But boy, when you have done all that God has called you to do, and you have that feeling of, you know what, I accomplished everything today that God set out for me. That's such a great feeling, that rest. But you have to work for it because there are all sorts of distractions. There are all sorts of things that pull us off task. There are all sorts of temptations that we face. And the enemy is trying to make us as busy as we possibly can doing things that don't matter. It it really bugs me. And sometimes I'll do this. Just start writing down everything I do during the day with my time. It's like some people, a good thing if you're struggling financially, budget-wise, is to first start writing down every penny you spend. It'll make you sick when you look at how much money you spend on certain things. But even more so is time, because you can always get more money. You can't get more time. And when we look at how we spend our time, it's, it's shocking. It's sometimes repulsive. It's sad that we can spend such large chunks of time doing things that are meaningless. That's exactly what the enemy wants to do to us. Because time is the one gift we have that we can't reclaim. And so the enemy comes in and wants to take it away from us by distracting us, by sidetracking us. And as a result, we don't even come close to rest. We don't even come close to understanding that feeling of like God at the end of six days of creation just said, I'm gonna rest now. That's it, I'm done. Have you ever been caught up? Have you ever been at a place where yeah, I finished my to-do list. Maybe, but probably not for most of us. And the reason isn't because we couldn't get it all done. Some important things went undone because we gave in to the tyranny of the urgent. And some things were on our to-do list that never should have been there in the first place. They just weren't that important. But the combination of those things and all the distractions and the interruptions and our weakness and failure cause us most days to, at the end of the day, just fall into bed exhausted. And at the end of the week, oh, you know, I could use some time off, but I just can't do it. We're, we all have jobs to do. We all have calling. But let's make sure that we're trying to listen to Him, get tuned into Him, so that we let Him set our agenda. And then we work doing the things that God's called us to do, even as Jesus labored and then said, I did everything you told me to do to the Father that we would to God that our lives would be that way, that the day would end at whatever time, hopefully fairly early, and we'd look back and go, God, everything you wanted me to do today, I was able to do it, and I thank you for it. But if we're going to do that, it's going to take work. It won't happen automatically. If you live your life just saying yes to everyone, just somebody wants you, you go, okay, I'll do that. Yeah, you want that done, I'll do it. I'm, I'm a personal testimony of it. It doesn't work. You, you try to do it i, I can 't even tell you there are t- this week i 'll confess to you, and I, hopefully well it, if the guy 's here it's it 's my fault, not his, but I was going to take Monday off, but somebody wanted to come in and talk to me, and the only day he could do it is Monday. so here I am down here Monday, you know to Sharon. it was a great time, but of course while i 'm here, I just go ahead and work the whole day and As a result, what happens? Other things happen. Things line up. Situations take place. And here I am, it's Wednesday, and I'm just going, wow, I'm sort of tired. I'm kind of burned out a little bit. How did that happen? I'm not sure how it happened, but I'll tell you what happened. I didn't work enough to enter into his rest. I would not feel the way I do if I only did what God wanted me to do this week. It just doesn't work that way. When when he says, take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we're feeling that heavy yoke, we better back up and go, wait a minute, I'm not entering into rest. Not just taking a day off. That's just a picture of it. We're supposed to be at Sabbath every day. Really, Jesus is our Sabbath. Every day we should have the feeling of freedom. Every day we should have the feeling of rest. That's the way he wants us to live. But he says it takes work actually to get there. Not doing more and more and more, but working not harder necessarily, just working smarter and getting our agenda from him and listening to what calling he has upon us and then allowing him to take over and and then we begin to understand what he's talking about when he talks about rest. On Sunday morning, we went over verses 12 and 13, this incredible passage. I, I can't even, it's the word of God. It's the power of the Word of God. It's alive. It's powerful. It's energizing, literally. That's the transliteration, energeo. It's sharp. It gets down to the heart of the matter. It can tell the difference between my spirit and my soul. The part of me that's just my will, my mind, my emotions, and that which is God speaking to me. It can tell the difference. It, it pierces to, between joints and marrow. It looks in and it sees the thoughts and the intents of my heart. I can't. See, my heart, like yours, is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Not me. I can't know my own heart. I have to let him know my heart. And, and the author of Hebrews is here saying, that's what my word does. So you haven't had time to be in the word? Oh, man, that's the time when you really need to get in the word. Because the Word can sort all of this out. Everything that's confusing about our lives, everything that's burdening us, everything that's weighing us down, all that causes us to come short of rest, you apply the Word and it goes in sharply and cuts and it makes that difference. And it, it gives our lives that perspective that comes from God and all of a sudden, oh man, that feels really good. I mean, sometimes it just feels good like to admit to you guys that I kind of blew it this week with my time, and taking on more things than probably I should have. It just feels good to even say that, because I knew, but I hadn't even admitted it. I have not even admitted it to God. It just kind of, I admitted it to you, so thanks. But... Uh, <laughs> Seriously, thanks, because even after that, I go, yeah, that was dumb. Every time somebody needs to talk to me, wants to talk to me, I don't have to just drop everything and come running down here and doing it. This isn't my church. I'm not in charge. I will not, and and anybody who comes to me for counseling will tell you, they're not just going to hear directly from God in what I say. I mean, I I will shoot straight with them, but I can't solve your problems. Anyone who comes into my office for help is going to go out, and they're still going to need help. But I hope they understand that it's going to be looking at Jesus that's really going to provide them with that help. Don't get me wrong, and please, don't you dare feel like, oh man, I, ought to, I want to talk to Dave, but oh, I don't want to be the sermon illustration next week. I have, <laughs> haven't tipped anybody off as to who it was, and I had a great time with the guy, and, you know, what can I say? God is good, God is faithful. And don't think I'm so overworked that you can't talk to me. That's not the case. There were plenty of other things I did this week, too. There are plenty of other directions in which I went. Things could have been shuffled a little differently is all I'm saying. And God's word is what can allow us to do that. It's what can allow us to really receive that rest and that peace. And he says in verse 13, there is no creature hid from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. If I were to not have mercy, then I would be just constantly punished for my unfaithfulness. And if I were to not have grace, I wouldn't have any of the good things at all that I have in my life. But God is not only merciful to not punish me for what I, where I deserve punishment, but He's gracious in that He wants to give me so much that I don't deserve, despite my lack of earning any of it at all. And the point of the chapter comes down really to this in this last section, and then we'll close because our time's up, and I really thought we'd get out early tonight. In fact, honestly, as I was sitting there, I'm thinking... This is going to be kind of embarrassing if we're out at like five after. I mean, I know you'd appreciate it, but here we are, it's 8.30. Here's the point of the the rest of this passage. Unbelief is what will keep us from entering God's rest. How do we show that unbelief? We don't trust Him. How do we show that we're not trusting Him? We don't go to Him. We don't open ourselves up to Him. The danger is to stop confessing is to start to become a phony, is to allow sin to harden our hearts so much so that now we don't even own up to our sin. Now we keep this facade of trying to convince people of how good we are. We defend ourselves. We try to defend our own righteousness. And he says here, look, guys, the word of God, apply it to your heart. It will gut you, but it's going to be for your good. And understand this, the high priest that's going ahead of us into the Holy of Holies, he is one who has experienced all that you've experienced. He knows that temptation. He became flesh, as we saw in chapter 2. Now we see it again in chapter 4. The incarnation means he became one of us, and he understands completely. Now, why do we hold back from him? Why do we harbor sin in our heart and don't even admit it to him? Why do we, with each other, try to pretend like we're better than we really are? Because we don't believe that it's already been covered. We don't believe that our sins are already forgiven. We don't believe that he went in there ahead of time and now says, come on. If we believe, we'll come boldly. And in fact, how often are we coming boldly before the throne of grace? How often are we being honest about our shortcomings with God and with each other? That'll tell us right away, are we believing or are we not believing? Because if I believe that my sins are forgiven, if I believe that they've already been atoned for, then when I see my failure, I'll admit it to anybody. I will not believe. Build up some sort of an act to make myself look better than I am. I don't have to because anything you accuse me of, I can tell you, I could tell you worse about myself, but I will tell you this every failure I've ever done, everything I've ever experienced, all of those things that might cause me to be lessened in your sight, Jesus Christ paid for them all. And He says, Come on boldly, you don't have anything to hide, man. I know what you're going through. You're not going to shock me with your sin. He says, I was tempted. I went through it worse than you can imagine because I'm God, becoming a man, took the sins of the world on my shoulders. Hey, I know what you're going through. Understand this. If you're laboring tonight because of not being willing or able to admit your shortcomings, just go boldly before the throne of grace. Just open up. You're already opened up anyway. You're not fooling him at all, and frankly, you don't fool most of us either. It's just not. you know. And if I were to get up here and pretend like I'm almost perfect, you're not going to believe it. You're just going to go, God, what a pompous jerk. And that would be right. But because I know who he is and I believe that it's okay, I believe that I'm covered already, that he's taken care of it. Does it cause me to go, let me see what I can get away with now? Absolutely not. It causes me to go, man, I don't have to carry the burden of an image I don't have to carry, I don't have to do the work of trying to cover for myself all the time. I can come boldly, openly, honestly. And that's what he wants all of us to know. And that's what it is to be his child, and that's what it is to believe. The children of Israel in the Old Testament died in the wilderness because they couldn't admit their own sin. Because they wouldn't open up themselves to God, they played a game, a religious game. And if you play that game... And if I play that game, we'll all die in the wilderness. But Jesus came so that we could quit playing games, so that we could take the sins, the burdens, the the cares, the worries that we're carrying on us and we're laboring, and people are going, boy, I'm worried about you. You're not looking too good. And he goes, let me have that stuff. What are you doing carrying that? You don't need to do that. Come boldly, and I'll be there, and I've got you covered. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your truth. Your word does cut like a knife. And God, as much as sometimes I don't appreciate it when I'm teaching the word and you nail me right while I'm up here. You're so faithful. And we've all told you you can do that. We're sorry. But God, we want to come boldly before your throne to get mercy and grace. And Lord... I pray that what we all work at tomorrow will be working toward rest. We'll be listening to you, responding to you, and entering into the rest that the children of Israel never experienced, but the rest that you want to give us before your throne of grace and mercy. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.